Hi, Ollie here with you. If you get a chance, please go and rate and review the podcast. It is free for you to download, but your job in return, if you can, is to go and give us a rating and tell us why you enjoyed the podcast. It really helps other people discover the episode. You can do it in your podcast app. It's really simple to do. Just click rate and review. All right, on with the show. And welcome to the Gutology Podcast, episode six. Today, your second brain, stress, anxiety and depression is what we're going to be discussing in today's episode. Uh, if you're listening to this for the first time, my name is Ollie Gallant. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a radio host and a podcaster and a filmmaker, but I spent much of my 20s battling with gut health issues. That's where I met Julia Davies, who's with me in the studio today. She's the co-host of the Gutology Pro uh, Project. She's a nutritional therapist that uses a functional medicine approach to helping people with gut-related issues. I encourage you now to go back to episode one and listen to this from the start. And if you want to just discover more about your gut health, head online to gutology.co.uk. Uh, so I'm really, actually really excited about this episode because I think even though so much is going on about the microbiome at the moment and about gut health and our understanding is expanding rapidly, certainly in, in the last two years, I think things like food intolerances, even to an extent autoimmune conditions and energy levels and sleep and all that sort of stuff, it's not too much of a stress for us or a stretch, I should say, to connect that with gut health. But then when you start getting into the second brain, as people are calling it, or stress, depression, anxiety, that then starts to feel quite far-fetched. So I'm interested today to, to sort of discuss this. And Juliet, off air, we were, we were talking about this when we were sort of preparing this episode. And I think a lot of questions about this come around to sort of chicken and egg as well. You know, when people heal their guts, the stress starts to reduce slightly and the anxiety goes down. And how much of that is to do with not having that stress in your life of having a bad gut and how much is it connected to the bacteria and the endorphins and that sort of stuff. So that, that's what we're going to explore today. Yeah, I think it's too complicated to say that um, there's one direct thing that helps your mental health. But I think we've just, we know so much now about all the ways that it connects with the gut. So exploring that is really useful to people that have got anxiety or depression. So coming up in the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to explain exactly what the gut brain link is. We've got some news that has come out this week about the gut and depression. We're also going to be talking about how to manage stress levels and anxiety, um, which I think is going to be really interesting later on. So let's start with the gut brain link. How... How does this all work and how can your gut influence the way that you feel mentally? Okay, so it's quite a big question and there's, it's not just one answer there because there's quite a lot of links between the gut and the brain that we know about now. So in the nervous system, we've got um, one of the major parasympathetic nerves called the vagus nerve. So that links directly from most areas of the gut directly to the brain. So if there's something going on in the gut, so if there's some aggravation or some foods that your gut doesn't like, your brain gets to know about that via signals that are emitted through the vagus nerve. So, so. would that be, you know, when we talk about, I suppose, what would be uh, most people would connect with is the fight or flight response. Yeah. 
that would be sent via the vagus nerve, would it? Is that how it sort of can? Is that what happens? Your brain has a feeling and then it gets sent down and your gut it's, decides. Yeah. So there's like two way communication with the vagus nerve. So if there's if the if in your if you have if you're experiencing mental stress, then your gut can know about that. And, you know, lots of people can identify with, you know, they've had a really stressful time and they get an upset tummy because of it. So we know there's this communication with what you're thinking and then what manifests in the gut, but it also goes the other way as well. So it's it's transporting signals and information from the gut environment and what's going on there to the brain. So if there's certain um, imbalances in the bacteria, for example, we've talked about that a lot in this series, then the that can manifest in the brain as anxiety. Or if the person takes a probiotic for two weeks, the message then that gets sent through the vagus nerve is different and it can have a really calming effect. So it's it, it's almost unfathomable that we can have this impact. But, you know, if you always consider the gut to be the interface with the world that you live in, the brain is so protected, isn't it? It's so deep in our bodies. The way it understands how we're living in the environment we're in is all through the gut and the information that then gets fed up through the nervous system. So we know that it can be transported, you know, those either both ways via the vagus nerve. But what is it like? What is it being sent? Is that connected to the gut bacteria and the chemicals that are sort of being released and created in the in, in the microbiome? Yeah. So the it's nervous system signals that are sent through the through the vagus nerve. But what's happening with the microbes is that they're producing lots of lots of chemical compounds, lots of different things that are active in terms of they call them bioactive compounds so they're active in your own biology so they get released they get absorbed through the gut wall and then they get into your blood circulation and then that travels to it travels to the brain it travels to different areas of the body and it's got different impacts on so many different things so it can actually help to regulate how much serotonin is being used in the brain and how that's being broken down for example it can um it can help with the um the control of gaba which is one of the one of the brain chemicals that really helps with sort of calm and peace so it actually produces chemicals that can contribute to the levels of those and also trigger the control of how they're acting at the time. So when you have anxiety or when you have depression, one of the age-old methods of understanding that is actually, well, is there an, a, an imbalance in the neurotransmitters, the brain chemicals? Is there too little of something such as serotonin or is there too much of something? So actually it's the microbes in the gut that are in control of regulating whether there is too much or too little and they have a, such a significant impact on that that it just really opens up a whole new way of how we consider psychiatry. So it make I can sort of make the connection myself is if you have dysbiosis in the gut, which is a, something we've talked about a lot in this series, which means you've got obvious digestive symptoms, you're bloated a lot, you've got loads of gas, you've got diarrhea or constipation, all of that sort of stuff. That makes sense to me. Is like there's an imbalance, there's inflammation, and that might be sending. Uh, signals through to the brain. Yeah. But are we saying as well that you might, your digestion might be great, but 
if you don't have quite the right balance of bacteria, that still could be having an impact on your mental health. Yeah, that is true. And that is the hardest thing to get your head around because you would think that imbalances in your gut cause gut symptoms, but not in all cases. And that's what gets, you know, it, it gets everybody's mind whirring because you don't have to have constipation or diarrhea or cramps in your tummy in order to... Um, as a, as a sort of manifestation of the gut imbalances, you may still have them, but they're just not appearing in you in that way. They're appearing as something else. So we know like, you know, diseases of the gut where you actually get gut damage, like celiac disease. Some people don't get any symptoms in their digestion at all, but yet they get osteoporosis or they get a skin condition and there's nothing to show that there's a gut problem. So sometimes it takes a while to get diagnosed with something like celiac because that's not well, that's not what... The doctors are looking at because it's a skin problem or it's a neurological problem or it's something else. But yet that is actual physical gut damage. But so. when somebody comes to your clinic and so they're not presenting any digestive issues whatsoever, let's just use that example there. Yeah, where they've okay. got some kind of skin condition. Yeah. Can you start to work out what's going on from a stool test? Yeah. 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 Right, so okay. what you can do is so with with the stool test, they give a lot of information now because they can measure the DNA of bacteria rather than the bacteria themselves. Because the if you consider the environment that our intestinal tract is, it's it's very dark and free from oxygen because it's not got any access to air. So the bacteria are difficult to grow in an oxygen rich environment. They would die. They thrive in an anaerobic environment. So it's always been historically quite difficult to identify exactly what's what's there because somebody gives a stool sample and then everything's dead by the time it gets to the lab so it's hard but now we can actually check the dna so we know exactly what's growing in in the gut because dead or alive you can still trace the dna so you can tell an awful lot but as well as actually looking at what bacteria are there what we're looking for is things that they're producing so things like the short chain fatty acids that the bacteria produce so they're just types of fat um, and they actually help protect the gut wall and they help reduce inflammation in the body. So if you don't have enough of the right sort of bacteria producing the right sort of fats that they that the body needs, then you can detect that in a stool sample. And that might not manifest as a digestive symptom at all. That could manifest as a skin problem because you're looking there at the integrity of the gut wall. So coming back to intestinal permeability again and leaky gut then that is something that often manifests as a systemic symptom rather than a gut-specific symptom. Right, okay, I'm with you. And so we talk about the the gut barrier, and I've heard people say, like, leaky brain. Like, what I... The, <laughs> Can you explain that to me? Like, there's there's so many, there's so much out yeah, there. This is just yeah, a time yeah. for us to be like, right, what the hell are people talking about? Okay, so. We work on the, when we're looking at our immune function and our whole body's function, there's barriers that we need to consider. So in terms of when you're with your gut barrier, you can eat or drink anything you like. And then it's up to that barrier whether or not it absorbs that, that substance or it doesn't. And so if it doesn't, it doesn't ever get into the body. <clears throat> it just travels right through. And what's something that you wouldn't want in the body? Oh, okay. So like a pesticide example right or um uh, some compound that's not been properly digested and broken down into a small enough bit right so, so your body just, just goes yeah, pass it straight, on by yeah um but we also have internal barriers as well so the blood brain barrier 
is a really significant barrier because it protects our brain. So instead of just normal circulation delivering anything that's traveling around the bloodstream into the brain, we have specialized cells that form a blood brain barrier so that in order to get into the tissues of the brain and the nervous system, it's under really, really tight control. Now, structurally, there is there are similarities between the blood-brain barrier and the intestinal barrier. Um, they're controlled by different cells and there's specialised cells in the nervous system that look after the blood-brain barrier. But it's thought now that because we know, we know a lot more about the intestinal permeability, so that barrier, and um, there's a lot more research now going into does that mean then that the blood brain barrier having a similar kind of role to play is affected as well? And it start, people are starting to think that, yes, it could well be affected. So leaky gut can equal leaky brain, which then has implications for I think we have to depression rena- and anxiety. I think we should definitely rename it leaky brain. That leaky gut is <laughs> one thing, but leaky brain just sounds devastating. If a doctor turned around and said, I've got leaky brain, I'd be really upset. Well, they've done studies now on people with depression and um, it's now considered a, a low chronic inflammation. So it's they've tested lots of different um, blood parameters to see is the level of inflammation and inflammatory markers in the blood higher? And it does tend to be with those that have got depression. So where does that inflammation come from? And that's when we always, we always have to sort of trace back what, what is broken in the body and where does it come from? Now, we're going to get onto that in news in just a second. But before we get into that, if we're doing stress, anxiety and depression today, I think probably what's really, really important to talk about is your adrenal glands. Because if you... Um, the whole point of this podcast is to go like, what is the science behind this? Like, what is the actual truth about it? Because when you when you step a, when you step away from traditional medicine, so the idea of going to the doctor and saying I've got stomach pain, and they say it's IBS, so you want more information. This is where nutrition and functional medicine come into practice. But with the internet, there is a danger there that the woo starts to mix with the real. So you might see some great articles on a website which talk about um, probiotics are really good when you're traveling. You think, oh, fantastic. And then the next one might be an article about some kind of cleanse. And it might just be a load of rubbish. And it's really hard to separate fact from fiction on the internet right now. And that's the whole kind of idea behind the Gutology Project. So one of the articles that I've seen this time and time again online, when people type in, I've got a bad gut, or I'm really low on energy, or I'm tired all the time, one keyword that seems to pop up is adrenal fatigue. So what is the truth behind your adrenal glands? And is adrenal fatigue a real thing? And what are the symptoms of it? Can you explain? Yeah, so the well, the adrenal glands are um, quite small little glands that sit on top of your kidneys. So you have two of them, one on top of each kidney. Um, and they are responsible for how your body deals with stress. So if you if you have, I don't know, say you've got a presentation to give at work, your stress levels will go up. Your adrenal glands are the first to respond to that. So they will release stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. So that should be a helpful thing. Yeah. Short Term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Short term. This you need these sort of things, and also a little. There's nothing wrong with all stress. It's all to do with balance of stress. A little bit of stress is quite good for you sometimes. Put under a bit of pressure. That's not necessarily a problem. But when what happens when you get adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion or these terms that you've seen on the internet 
is when you are constantly stuck in the fight or flight activation of your nervous system. So we've talked a bit about fight or flight before. It's just when you're constantly under stress and that stress just never gives in. So your adrenals are saying, okay, more cortisol, more adrenaline, and your body almost gets so used to that, it keeps producing it. So people get stuck in a cycle. So what happens initially is they get really high levels of cortisol, which is really damaging to your physiology um, because it never is resting again. It's just too high. Same with adrenaline. You know, adrenaline is the is the hormone that causes your heart to beat really fast and your blood pressure to go up. And, you know, it's it's actually getting ready for that fight or flight state. So um, when your adrenals are exhausted, what that simply means is they can't keep up with that anymore. They can't then produce any cortisol. They just can't. So it's almost like they've run out of raw materials to do that. And that might display in tiredness, lack of energy. Yeah, so tiredness, lack of energy. So people with chronic fatigue have, you know, where they just, they're unable to even meet the requirements of living. So I can't hold down a job, just too exhausted, but not sleeping terribly well either. So completely lost the balance in their life. Um, is that they often are low cortisol. So it's quite a simple test that you can do to actually test your cortisol levels by measuring saliva because that's the most representative representative fluid in the body that tells you the levels of cortisol. Um, And you can actually make an assessment because it's physiologically how you deal with stress is anyone's guess. Everybody thinks, oh, no, I thrive on stress. I deal really well with stress or, gosh, any stress, I just have a you know complete meltdown. But actually, that's mentally how you're coping with it. Physiologically, sometimes it's harder to detect. So that's one of the most useful tests that I do in practice is somebody that appears to be thriving. I'm saying, OK, look, actually, from what I can see with your cortisol levels, this is preceding a crash, an absolute crash where you won't be able to do any of those things. So we need to intervene at that point to stop them doing that. But true adrenal fatigue is really where the body has got an incapacity to make cortisol to sustain requirements. And without going too much into adrenal fatigue, we'll we'll do an episode of this on on the website. So there'll be a video episode. So you can go to gutology.co.uk if you want to get get more into specific individual things, if you want to explore that more. But what can be done about adrenal fatigue? How can that be treated? So um, sleep and rest are the two obvious things that will really, really help the adrenals to recover, but nutrients and diet. So when you've got adrenal fatigue, your ability to um, maintain a nice level, even blood sugar is really impaired. So people could have low glycemic load diets to really help slow release sugars into the bloodstream because the adrenals can't really control that anymore. So that would help a lot. Um, And then trying to understand where the areas of of stress are that's actually activating the fight or flight so frequently. And really going back to the the roots of that, which is obviously different for any any sort of case. Okay, but with all of these things, it all generally starts with pairing yourself with a great nutritionist who understands how to do proper stool testing in conjunction with somebody who's trusted and they understand how to interpret those results for you. So, so it's really important that you find yourself a great nutritionist. And if you want help with that, again, contact us via Gutology co.uk with all of your questions. All right, let's jump into news this week because nicely uh, last week a study came out which was the first uh, to find the connection in humans as far as gut microbes being linked with depression. 
And the two types of bacteria, you're going to have to excuse my pronunciation here. I am not a gut health expert. Uh, uh, Coprocus and Dialista, they found that they were depleted in people with depression. But this was a really large human study. So just before we get into this, explain why studies like this are almost uh, more, um, uh, you would more valid you would say than others yeah so when so in the in the research world um, a lot of the a lot of the tests are initially done on mice um, and they can have they they use germ-free mice which means they can actually have a sterile environment within the mouse and then they can introduce different types of microbes and then observe the effects so then they're they're noting the effects of specific types of bacteria that they can introduce but Doing experiments on mice, it doesn't necessarily always translate to humans. It, what it does, it gives a wealth of quite useful information to then stem a hypothesis from, but it always needs to then have a human trial to see how they can be translated. So, you know, there's a huge amount of cancer research and to cure cancer in a mice isn't actually that challenging, but then in, implement that into a human and then we hit all sorts of, you know, barriers that that couldn't be identified in that initial mouse study. So there's often translation issues between those types of studies. So when we see a study that's got a, a decent sample size, so over a thousand humans, then we're thinking, right, how is this actually working in practice? How does this apply to clinical, you know, beings? Um, and who have got real symptoms that might have multifactorial causes to them. And what you were saying before about they know, you know, they are now thinking about depression as like an inflammatory condition and the body's responding that in a certain way. And that's really interesting getting our heads around a little bit more about the gut brain barrier there and how and the vagus nerve and that sort of stuff. But what this trial is saying is that actually there is something in the bacteria that appears to be different in people that are depressed. Mm. So what, 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 why, what is that and what is this study saying? Yeah, so um, it's to do with the, the compounds, these bioactive compounds that the bacteria are producing. So there's lots of different types it could be. Some of them are cytokines, which are um, ke um, chemicals that um, are part of the inflammatory response. They play a huge role in your immune system. Um, some of them are short chain fats and these these again have lots of messaging qualities and they help to protect the gut as well. Um, so it's looking at what what different types of bacteria produce and the the noticing that if a certain bacteria produces a certain type of compound, this then tends to have an anti-anxiety effect or an antidepressive effect. And it could be because the mechanism is by reducing inflammation in the body, or it could be an unknown mechanism, because there's still a lot of these links that we still have yet to be established. So if somebody turned up to your clinic and let's ignore like gut health issues, their digestion's fine. And actually you probably don't get many people like this because people turn up generally that have got gut problems because we don't make the connection. But if I was to come to you and I said, I'm really, really struggling with depression, where because there'll be people listening to this who have periods of feeling low or have very high stress and anxiety and we'll, we'll talk about managing stress in a second but and it's a holistic approach of course you're not there is not i think it'd be foolish to think there's going to be a time where we work out what the bacteria are we switch them and suddenly everything's okay mm. it might you know that real hard end depression that is chemical mm. there might be something there but it is always a holistic approach yeah. like everything we talk about but where would you start as far as diet and supplements when it comes to mood? 
So I think that's a really interesting question because with with diet, particularly if we just think about diet first, um, and that's the way I would in practice anyway, it's look at the food first and then supplement, you're supplementing the diet. So you don't just want to have supplements if the diet's terrible. But with with both anxiety and depression, there's lots of food issues surrounding that. So sometimes um, comfort eating is the only time of day that that person might actually feel all right and they think okay and they know that they're eating a lot of horrendous foods but it makes them feel better for just half an hour even though they'll hate themselves afterwards but there's all those sorts of issues that actually you know it would be completely useless for me to say to that person so I'm going to give you this food plan and I want you to follow this and Mondays I want you to eat this Tuesdays I want you to eat that and they sort of nod along smile go away and then eat 10 Mars bars because they instantly think no that's not going to happen so I think sometimes the depression can cause a, a kind of strange relationship with food where they're just not they're not they're almost on a sort of self-destructive path where they're not in the right headspace we need to make inroads first into into their depression and understanding that a little bit more before we can go with that down a strict dietary approach. It would be completely inappropriate to do that initially. But in if that was the scenario, then I would probably ideally look at foods that would balance blood sugars. You know, that's the ideal theory of what you want to do, because if you get blood sugar lows, that can contribute to both anxiety and depression. So looking at that sort of stuff is useful. But I would look particularly at two nutrients, magnesium and B vitamins. And sometimes people with depression, they can't really metabolize B vitamins from foods very well or from supplements very well. And they start to, it starts to induce these sort of chemical imbalances in the nervous system. So looking at that and you can test for that as well and really explore like the physiology of how they're managing their nutrients, whether they're absorbing them correctly and then converting them correctly. That is really, really key to that. That would probably be more valuable than just telling them you must eat this, don't eat that at that particular point in time. Um, uh, if you want to read more about this, you can jump online to the uh, website gutology.co.uk and we've got more articles about that up online. But really interesting study and we'll also post that as well if you want to read the m more details, the more scientific of you. And that kind of does bring us nicely on to managing stress because we've established already in today's episode, look, stress and anxiety can literally be brought on by certain things that are happening in the gut, certain bacteria, inflammation, those sorts of things. But just addressing the gut issues is unlikely to completely resolve stress and anxiety. There's obviously lifestyle implications as well, things you can do. We were having a real laugh when we were prepping this episode because the when we talk about stress, the advice we give is almost try to chill out and when you're really, really stressed, the one thing that you can't do is just tr chill out. And how many of us have read books about stress busting or, um, you know, uh, one thing is, oh, why don't you try some deep breathing? Well, when you're really stressed out and your mind's chaotic and running around, sat silent, deep breathing is probably one of the last things that's going to really genuinely sort of help your stress levels out. Mm. And I think even as... Uh, people that, you know, are practicing in the industry like yourself or myself, like I spend a lot of time on air and talking to people and having those communications. It's really important to say that we're equally fallible to you can follow the best diet in the world and you can uh, you do, do all the right things in your lifestyle. 
But also there are just some life situations that create a lot of stress as well. Mm. Um, So I thought it was a, a good chance today to talk about, okay, let's say you've got your diet sorted, you know, and you're exercising because we know that exercise is a big, big one. How can you get regular exercise in? But that can be too much for somebody that's feeling unwell. Or even once you've got that sorted, you're still feeling stressed. And I think a lot of it comes down to what we've been talking about across the whole of this series is being realistic. You know, when we, I think the whole one big thing about the Gutology Project yeah, sure. You can, you know, we've, we've, we've said, look, this is the process. You, um, you start with a, working out what is the problem. You find a great nutritionist and you do some stool testing and then you need to clear that problem out somehow. And then you need to restore the gut and then you need to go onto a diet that maintains it. That's kind of like the ethos around what we're saying. And I don't think it's completely dissimilar to stress as well. It's really important to kind of work out what, areas of your life are causing stress and are there any areas of your life that you can make a change to and just simple things like one thing I find really helpful is actually just writing things down because just trying to find tiny little wins so if you write down right I'm really really stressed right now write a list of all the things in your life that are stressing you out and they can be as big or as small as you like so I have a Bad relationship with my family. Okay, right, that's a big stress. Um, me and my husband uh, argue a lot. Right, Just get everything down. Right down to, I hate my commute to work because the traffic stresses me out. To, um, I hate at a weekend going and doing the food shop because I feel like I get no time off. And then once you've got all those things written down on a piece of paper, then put a mark next to the ones that you could actually make a change to that's realistic. You're not going to be able to change your relationship with your family. Do you know, that's a big, like, okay, you get everyone into family therapy and everyone gets along with it. That's a long-term big battle. You might even go, do you know what, right now, trying to tackle the arguments in my marriage, that's unrealistic. But you might get down the list and go, Okay, that shop on a Saturday really, really annoys me. I could do that online. And there's just one tiny thing that you've removed off that list. And like we were saying about diet as well, rather than trying to go the full extreme of I'm going to change my entire diet, I'm going to go sugar-free and carb-free and all these sorts of things, those little wins are exponential. Because even if just in that one practice that you change one thing And on that Saturday morning, you don't go to the supermarket and you do that shop online. That's a win. And it feels good. (laughs) And that feel good releases some endorphins. And that might help you to write the next list to take on a slightly bigger problem, which might be, okay, I'm arguing a lot with my partner. I'm going to try and have an open conversation away from the heated arguments. And you've got a bit more energy. And also, just the process of having a win gives you the encouragement to go on and win on the next thing. And I, I th- I'm convinced that's the same with diet. I've certainly felt like that in my life, where it's all so overwhelming, you just want to bury your head in the sand. Start small. Start with the tiniest thing you can. 
Yeah, the thing I'm, I'm thinking of there is that um, everything you say is completely so true. You can't just, you can't make the stress vanish because if you could, it wouldn't be stress. And I think there's those sort of relentless situations where you have to just get on and do it. You have to, but your body is screaming. Um, I think a lot of the people that I see, um, stress is a, is a part of every consultation where we discuss various things about you know what's going on in their lives because it contributes such a lot to their physiology and the real hard issue is that when their illness is their source of their stress and that connection so they would say well I w- if i felt well i would be fine because there isn't actually any other stress in their lives other than the way they feel and then we're in this really really literally a stressful situation it's a vicious cycle so i do similar techniques with the people that come and see me and you know i get to know them quite well if i feel that we need to have some kind of psychotherapist involved then i will make that happen but often it's actually just more um counseling them in a way i guess to understanding what the things they can have control of and some of the things that they don't and actually sometimes just going through the process of working with somebody with diet and nutrition and understanding your body physiology a lot better gives you that element of control that actually lowers the stress just that little bit even if your symptoms don't change your level of stress can lower just enough for you to feel like you can get a grip on how you're feeling. And then obviously, as you feel physically better, then the stress will lessen anyway. But that's a particularly difficult type of stress that I've had a lot of experience with when the stress is coming from the illness that they're suffering with. And I think that's interesting as far as what we're talking about today is like it's the chicken and the egg, isn't it? Is the inflammation in the gut making you feel low? Where do you begin? Do you start with the psychotherapy? Or do you start with the gut? And I think the whole message is, is you do small things holistically. So you try and what are the smallest things I can do right now? Change my diet, book and see a nutritionist, read a little bit more online, take some of the other stresses out of my life, remove some of my commitments, allow myself to get a better sleep routine. And it can sound so overwhelming if you are at the beginning of that. But as soon as you just do get those tiny little wins, it really does become exponential. And a year from now, if you follow that, those little wins will become bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. And suddenly the stress starts to ebb yeah. away. But actually trying to look at stress and tackle it on the nose, it's not, it doesn't not really happen. work. No, no, it doesn't really work like that. The other does it? thing that we don't do, we just don't do this in Britain for some reason very well, but is ask for help. Ask people to actually help you and be honest about how you feel. If you're overwhelmed and you can't manage, There is, in most cases, there's a lot of people that would step in to help you, whether it's a neighbour or a friend or a family member, you know, but how often do you talk to people and they say, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And they're not on the inside. They're absolutely having a meltdown about something. But on the outside, no, I'm fine because they think they should be. Actually, if we were all a bit more open and honest about the way we felt, it would help everybody because suddenly there would be this new dialogue of, you know, okay, you've got that. Well, I can help you with that. I'm good at that. Or, you know, well, look, if you're having a problem with picking the kids up from school, well, maybe we could 
do a swap and I could do that. And actually, I think sometimes it's not being a, you know, emotional mess every day, you know, but trying to actually let people in, let people help you. I can't tell you the number of people that come into my office and they're saying, oh, well, I couldn't possibly put that on my daughter. She's far too busy. I couldn't possibly ask my son to drive me here. So I'll just struggle on. I'll just struggle on. Actually, you talk to any of those people mentioned, they would be delighted to help. So I think it's that that openness and that willingness that actually sometimes you can't do it and that's okay. But help getting help from other people will will really help you to get rid of that stress um every week on the gutology podcast uh, we bring you um the the tip of the week they're like try this we call it and the whole idea behind this is it has to be something that's really really cheap and it's easy to implement um and it's practical and it will genuinely have an impact so in the past we've talked about things like um, eating three hours before you go to bed, massive impact on your digestion. Uh, apple cider vinegar before you eat to raise your stomach acid up. It's cheap. You could buy it on Amazon or in a health food shop and it's an easy hack and it's really, really good for your gut. We've talked about kefir milk and probiotics and stuff like that. This week, it kind of for us had to be really, really connected to stress, anxiety and depression. And And I think where we were talking about there you know, when somebody says, if you're really, really stressed, try some deep breathing. And from my experience, for me to find relaxation away from like the stresses of life or work or, you know, if you're if you're having a hard time, there has it has to be an activity for me personally that is distracting enough that it's so I can concentrate it on enough to not think about other things. Because you tell me to sit in a quiet room my brain is going to be going wild. I'm sure a lot of people are similar. So the activity has to be stimulating enough that I'm not thinking about other things, but also relaxing and less stressful than the other things. And I think one of those things definitely is yoga. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think doing yoga in a home environment on something like YouTube would be perfect because a lot of people that I see with anxiety have a, it sort of manifests as a social anxiety as well. So the sheer thought of them going to a class of yoga and being the new one would you know send them into a spin so it's like no we're not going to ask you to do anything new anything that you find terrifying but do it in the comfort of your own home and then if you don't feel up to it you can just do halfway through and stop but i think i think yoga is a really good one because it's you can get all sorts of different levels of yoga you don't need to be standing on your head doing yoga there's so many different beginners things that 10 minutes of yoga beginners yoga on youtube and there's quite a lot of different links we can put some on the website um but it's it, it will help you just get your get your body moving which always helps to have quite a good effect on the physiology of it when you're just moving i think when you're anxious and depressed sometimes you can get very tight lots of tension in your muscles so just having a good stretch will really really help that but you're following the moves you're trying to trying to copy what the video is showing you to do it will also slow down your breathing rate so if you're really anxious and you are breathing really fast and your brain's going a million miles an hour trying to focus on you know can you bend that knee in the right place or you know just trying to focus on something else just for a few minutes can actually calm the brain before you've even realized even if you go into it thinking it's not going to make any difference i'm going to be feel really, really anxious the whole way through actually um and, and i've recommended a lot of people do this but when you get 5 10 15 minutes in actually it does have a calming effect 
Yeah, and I think that, you know, if you can do that through yoga or you can do that through running, it's the same thing, just tiny little wins. Like, can I run for five minutes? Can I fast walk? Because by week three, it'll be 10 minutes and by week four, it'll be 20. And, and I really, really struggle to drag myself to the gym some days and I do it quite often. Um, and the sort of thing that I fall back on if I'm, I'm tempted to drive past the gym is no matter how bad I felt, I've never regretted doing it. Not once, mm. ever. I've never come out of the gym and gone, oh, that was rubbish. I really regret it. You always feel better. Mm. And there are a few things in life that give you that guaranteed win, mm. but it's a deal with the devil at the start. To ch- the hardest thing is just putting out the yoga mat or turning on YouTube. Yeah. That will be the hardest bit. Yeah. To, you're sat there on Netflix or, you know, you're lying on the couch that morning and the hardest thing to do will actually be to put some yoga leggings on or put a T-shirt yeah. on or some shorts and switch it on. Yeah, yeah. I think there's... there's- bound to be people listening and thinking I'm not doing that I can't do yoga I'm not skinny enough or flexible enough or or anything it doesn't matter in your own living room you can just try but the other thing that would be really really useful is if you really feel that you've got poor mobility or you just can't do any, anything physical like that take your shoes and socks off go outside and stand on the ground and that really helps just connect you with the nature again it's got a grounding effect on you and it can really help balance the um the the anxiety that's going on in your system at that time um one recommendation is yoga with adrienne um that's that's a really popular one on youtube and she does everything from like beginner workouts to more advanced stuff uh things around anxiety so her is adrian a-d-r-i-e-n-e and that is a really really good place to start and it's low pressure and you can try it at home and it doesn't cost a lot of money Uh, Before we wrap up today, just sort of reflecting back on uh, the episode, if you want to discover more about these and bespoke articles, if if a certain part of this series where you went, God, you were talking about Crohn's and that is me or depression or constipation, then you can get more granular with it via the website, gutology.co.uk and ask us if there's something we haven't spoken about, send us a message via the website. You know, um, you can say, hey, Um, this particular thing here is something my mum has been suffering with for years and we're really happy to explore. That's the whole idea of this. And please also, if you do get a chance, rate and review via iTunes. It helps more people discover this episode. Um, So I think the sort of debrief from what I've learned today, Julia, is by improving your gut health, you aren't necessarily going to resolve stress, anxiety, depression but there is actual proof there about this second brain and how that does connect to your brain. This is not woo. This is real science. And if you can reduce inflammation in your gut and you can rebalance it, you're giving yourself the foundations to really improve your mental health as well. It's one piece of the puzzle. Let's not fool ourselves that there's a magic probiotic you're going to take and you're going to feel great. Yeah, it's too, it's, there's so many factors involved that... It is, it's a significant part, but it is a part of, as you say, a bigger puzzle. But I think what's interesting is, you know, that study that we've discussed and other studies are backing up the real evidence there that, yeah, we've tried this in humans now and it is very significant what is happening with the gut. So it just opens up a new realm of viewing um, psychiatric problems. And whatever you're trying to do, start small. Don't send yourself on the low-carb diet. Don't send yourself on a crazy amount of probiotics. Don't try and go and run a marathon. Don't try and solve everything in life in one go. Just small, little wins. And I promise you, 
it does become exponential. So we'll see you next week, episode seven. It's all about the diet. And we've left this till last because it's probably one of the most sort of uh, broad subjects to talk about. What diet do we eat? What does Julia recommend? Should it be vegetarian? Should it be vegan? Should you have meat in your diet? Should it be high carb, low carb? Um, It's a big one. And I think it's probably going to be one of the most fascinating. So uh, thanks for being with us. Please do rate and review on iTunes. You've got questions in the meantime, head to gutology.co.uk. Mm-hmm.